Uh, a number of you have the experience of two different backgrounds. Uh, some of you are immigrants. Uh, you grew up in one country, but now you live here. Uh, others of you have lived overseas for periods of time, but now you're back home. Uh, the experience of living one culture and language at home with certain values and priorities and then being part of a different one outside your home. Uh, missionary kids are often called third culture kids because they don't fit completely into either culture, the culture of their family or the culture that they live in. In the last few years here in our church family, uh, we've watched as a few missionary families have had to adjust to returning home to Australia. Uh, and the kids especially have had to find their place and find their identity. But that adjustment is nothing compared to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate third culture kid. Uh, he was with God the Father from all eternity. God created everything through him and for him. But then he took on flesh, was conceived without human father, a human mother who was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, and then born by normal human birth, completely helpless and dependent. Truly God and truly man. Not half man and half God. Not God who looked like a man or a man with divine qualities, or God who stopped being God while he was man, none of those things. He was fully both at the same time. Now, we may have lots of questions about how that works out in practice. In what ways was the man Jesus limited? Was he born knowing who he was, or, or did he learn it? Was he performing miracles in nappies? Uh, but the problem is the Bible doesn't really explain it or answer these questions. Mostly it just assumes that it is true, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now that's what we see in these verses that Sarah read so well for us. She did well, didn't she? She told me, I said, oh, I'm sorry I gave you that passage with all those names. And she said, I've read the Matthew one as well in church. So she was just lucky, I guess. Uh, well, Luke introduces us to Jesus. This is the first we sort of see of the adult Jesus. And in each of this, the three sections of this introduction, we see something about his godness and also something about his manness, if that's, if that's a word, his deity and his humanity. Uh, we see that Jesus is baptised like us but that God declares him his special, beloved Son of God. Secondly, we see that he is born like us, and yet he is the only true Son of God since Adam. And thirdly, we see that he is tempted like us, and yet he never sinned. And so what all of that means is that he is exactly what we need as our Saviour, as our priest, and as our king. So that's where we're going. Uh, first section, Jesus' baptism. Uh, follow along with me, Luke chapter 3, verse 21. It's either in the white sheet, that's probably easiest, uh, or if you want to uh, grab a Bible or even on your phone, 
Uh, Luke 3, 21, it's the start of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, It's the first we've heard of Jesus for 18 years, uh, since that one episode in the temple when he was 12. And right here in the very first verse, two things to notice. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. Uh, Jesus was baptised and Jesus prayed. Now this man, whose birth was announced by angels, who as a child called God his own father, was baptised. He lined up with the rest of the crowds. Can you imagine him standing in line? Just an ordinary human being to be washed with water as a sign of forgiveness of sin. Now for most people, that seems to be the big question in this section. Why was Jesus baptised? He was sinless. He didn't need to be baptised. But that's not the question Luke answers. He just mentions it, that he was baptised along with the rest of the crowd, just a regular person. But what does interest Luke is that Jesus was praying. He's the only Gospel writer who mentions this. The one who enjoyed intimate fellowship with the Father from all eternity was praying because he was human. And look at what happens. His father answers his prayer. Heaven was opened. In verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Uh, Firstly, God the Son talking to God the Father. And then God the Father sending God the Holy Spirit to God the Son. And then he says, you are my son. Now hundreds, perhaps thousands of books have been written over the last 2,000 years trying to explain the two mysteries described in this verse. The Trinity, that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And the second mystery, the second truth for us to get our heads around, the two natures of Christ, that he is fully God and fully man. Now in Matthew's Gospel, it records the words as, this is my son whom I love. So it reads more like a public announcement to the crowd. God is speaking to everybody else. But here, I think the point is that God is speaking to Jesus. He's answering Jesus' prayer. This is a two-way conversation. Now, if we have the answer to Jesus' prayer, perhaps you're wondering, well, what was Jesus' prayer? Perhaps it was something like, who am I, Father? What is it you want me to be doing? How am I to save your people? What do I do? Where do I start? And God the Father gives two answers. His first answer is to send God the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and empower Jesus on the journey. Now, I'll just stop there because perhaps it's more accurate to say that he already has the Holy Spirit and so God is reminding Jesus that he has the Holy Spirit. Perhaps that's a more accurate way to describe it. He's reminding Jesus, you have the power of my spirit That's the answer, perhaps, to his how question. How am I to do this? And his answer to the who question, who am I? 
You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It's a truth Jesus had understood years earlier when he was 12. Luke chapter 2, verse 41, uh, he was left behind in the temple by his parents. Uh, And they find him in the temple listening and asking the experts uh, questions. And everyone was astonished with his understanding and his answers. And then when Mary finds him, she says in verse 48, Son, your father and I have been searching for you. (laughs) And Jesus answers, uh, precocious 12-year-old, verse 49, Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Uh, Not Joseph. He'll he'll go back to Joseph's house. He's talking about the temple. He had known then something about what it meant to be God's son, as well as Joseph's son. And so now, 18 years later, the father, his father adds to this picture, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. He's saying something about Jesus' identity. I think he's also saying something about Jesus' job description what he would do. Jesus' identity as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus had always existed. Infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, equal with the Father in every way, yet as the Son, he submits and obeys his Father in everything. And God says he is pleased with his Son. He enjoys watching his Son, relating to his Son, Now that's something the Father has done from all eternity. You are my son, with you I am well pleased. I think also there's an echo of Genesis chapter 1 here as well, creation. When God enjoyed the world that he'd made and he said that it was very good. Because Jesus the man was born into this created world and he is perfect. Now, every new father thinks his baby is perfect, but Jesus actually is. Exactly the way God meant mankind to be. The father's special and unique son, and also his unique and perfect man, the pinnacle, the culmination, the completion of creation. With you, I am well pleased. That's what he's saying about Jesus' identity, but he's also saying something about Jesus' job description, his role. You are my son. It's a quote, probably, from Psalm 2, uh, which describes God's anointed one, his Messiah, his King, the one that God would send to lead and rescue his people. You are my son, today I have become your father. That's the coronation of God's King. And so God's answer to Jesus' question about who he, who he is and what he will do, I think, is that uh, Jesus is going to be God's uh, appointed rescuer, his Messiah, his King. And the second part of God's answer, with you I'm well pleased, it, it reminds us of Isaiah 42. And I suspect that um, God is talking about, in Isaiah 42, about Um, a suffering servant, Uh, this this figure who, um, he says in Isaiah 42, God says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. 
And I wonder whether God is wanting Jesus to be looking to Isaiah's prophecies about the servant to see what his role was going to be, to find himself in those descriptions. Descriptions that would culminate in suffering described in Isaiah 53. This servant was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Would Jesus have been meditating on those prophecies as he thought about his role? Well, that's the first section of our passage today. Jesus was baptised like us. But Luke goes on, Jesus was born like us. Uh, Luke chooses to put, interestingly, his genealogy here. It's a big, long list of names of Jesus' descendants. He puts it at the start of Jesus' ministry rather than at his birth or even at the start of the whole book. It helps us to answer the question, who is Jesus? Halfway through verse 30, it says, He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. So it was thought. Uh, That little phrase is a hint about Jesus' miraculous conception and birth, his unique place in human history, the only one ever born without the help of an earthly father. Yet he is fully human. He deserves his place in the human race. That's the point of that long list of names. He had real ancestors, including King David. And notice how Luke goes right back to Adam. Look over to verse 37, near the end, it says, The son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Yes, that's right. Adam was a son of God. Created in God's image. Created perfect. He and Eve were the only ones ever perfect. At least until they sinned. And until Jesus came. So who is Jesus? He is 100% human. Born like us. And yet the only true perfect son of God. The only true image of God. The only one who ever kept the original family resemblance of being God's son. Well, that's the second section. Jesus was born like us. In the third section, we see Jesus was tempted like us. Jesus is at the Jordan with John the Baptist. He's baptised. He receives the Holy Spirit. And the Father speaks to him. And then chapter 4, verse 1, we read... Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. He receives the Holy Spirit, or is reminded that he has the Holy Spirit, and straight away the Spirit begins to guide him. He leads him into the desert, perhaps even in answer to Jesus' prayer, who am I? What am I to do? 
Uh, it's often by pushing the boundaries that you can work out who you are. Uh, by finding out how far you can go, you learn new things about yourself. Uh, like the SBS show, perhaps you're watching it, I know a few of you are, Alone Australia. Uh, people choose to be left in the wilderness alone to survive. Last night we were sitting there eating dinner as we were watching these people starving <laughs> themselves. Uh, people choose to be left. And, and apart from the, the prize money, what motivates them? Well, many of them say they entered the competition because they wanted to push their limits to find out who they were. Now, I think that's part of what's happening here for Jesus. One of the limits that's pushed uh, for Jesus was, was no food. There's that wonderful piece of understatement, <laughs> verse 2. He ate nothing for 40 days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. <laughs> Solitude and fasting, two of the traditional ways that we can encourage closeness to God, uh, that we can cast away everything else that distracts us, focusing our mind on him. Jesus is doing that in the desert, growing intimacy with God, learning from him what God's plans were. But it was also a test, a chance to see how much he'd learned as the true son of God, as the new Adam, as the new Israel. The old Israel had been led out of Egypt into the desert and they'd stumbled, they'd fallen again and again. They gave in to temptation, 40 years of failing. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus succeeds where Israel fails. He's following the path that God's people should have followed. I think we're meant to make that comparison between Jesus and Israel, not just the 40, 40 days compared to 40 years, but also the particular verses that Jesus quotes. He quotes from Deuteronomy, all three of those quotes, within a chapter or two of one another from Deuteronomy. These are God's words to Israel in the desert. Now, Hebrews expands on this idea. Uh, Jesus was completely man, uh, tempted in every way, just as we were tempted, yet was without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. We look at this picture of Jesus and we don't see a different human because he didn't sin. In a sense, we see the perfect human. We see the only true human. All of us are less than human, less than God designed and wants us to be. We're still human, but we are fallen human. God's definition, God's original model was sinless. And so, in a sense, Jesus is more human here than we are. And looking forward, Jesus is the prototype for a new humanity. He, he's the goal of humanity, the target, our final destination. Jesus is the one in whose glorious likeness we will be made when he returns. So let's have a quick look at how Jesus models that new humanity for us, the goal he gives us to aim for. Satan tempts him, verse 3. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you're the son of God. Do you notice? 
He's undermining the very declaration from God that we've just seen. You are my son whom I love. Just like the snake in the Garden of Eden, Nikki made that connection well, didn't she? Did God really say you are not to eat the fruit? Did God really say? He's offering Jesus the easy way out. You don't have to go through with the suffering. You don't have to be the servant who suffers. Take the easy way. Jesus responds, mankind was designed for more than just physical food. Now, because I'm a man, that's what I will do. Satan tries again, verse 5. You don't need suffering to be victorious. Just worship me and you'll get all the kingdoms of the world. But it's such a puny taunt. It's such a tiny question. Notice he's not even talking about the universe that God's made. He's offering the inhabited world. God has made so much more than just this planet. Jesus already rules all of creation. And Satan's offering him this world. And you notice what else Satan says, verse 6? I will give you all authority and splendour, for it has been given to me. Who gave it to him? Well, he's only offering it because God has allowed him some sort of limited power over this world. It's not really his to give. Jesus answers, verse 8, Mankind was designed to only worship the Lord his God. And because I'm a man... That's what I will do as well. Uh, Satan tries again, verse 9. Throw yourself down from the top of the temple. Shortcut God's plans. Force his hand. Why sit back and let him control your life? It doesn't have to be this way. You can be boss of your own life. You choose. Once again, Jesus answered, mankind was designed not to test God. Since I am a man, that's what I will do as well. We're thinking at home group this week week about what it means to test God. Now, Jesus is being tested and yet we are not to test God. Uh, When we look back at the the context of what Israel was doing when they tested God, it, it was when they choose not to trust God. When we worry, when we choose our way instead of God's way. When we complain or doubt, that's testing God. But Jesus was walking steadfastly toward the cross. And even though he struggled, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. You see, that's what it means not to put God to the test, to lay ourselves open before him. So there we have Jesus' example, the prototype, the model to copy. When we are tempted, we remember how we were designed. The maker's instructions always produce the best results. When we know God's word, when we know his commands and his promises, those are the ways to defeat Satan. And so Jesus comes to the end of his desert testing program. Just like new models of cars, they undergo extreme testing in the outback. If they can cope with the desert, they can cope with anything. 
And so here we see Jesus, the new model, he passes with flying colours. He's ready for the task. And so what does all of this mean for us? That Jesus is fully God and fully man. What, why does it matter? As you head out to lunch, coffee, the rest of your week ahead. Well, let me quickly share um, a guy called Millard Erickson wrote uh, a, a book, a, a systematic theology, and he talks about why it matters. Five reasons why it's important to us that Jesus was a man and four reasons why it's important that he is God. So firstly, why does it matter Jesus was a man? Only a man can offer a sacrifice on behalf of men. Secondly, Jesus can truly sympathise with us. He knows what you're going through. Thirdly, Jesus shows me what true humanity is like. He is my example. Fourthly, that Jesus is a man means that human nature and the physical world we live in is good. We're not to despise the world we live in and just hope for heaven. We can enjoy life now. And fifthly, God is not distant. He's not up there, impossible to know. We can know him. We sang holy, 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 and then the chorus is God with us. Uh, Secondly, why is it important that Jesus is God? Well, firstly, we can know, truly know, what God is like. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. No one other than Christians is able to say as definitively, as solidly, what God is like. Secondly, it's important that Jesus is God because it means his death is sufficient for everyone. It is not merely a single human who died, but it is the infinite God who died in our place. Thirdly, it's important that Jesus is God because it means that God and man have been reunited. It was not simply an angel or a messenger, but God himself who crosses the gap. Fourthly, worship of Christ is appropriate. We worship the Father and we worship the Son. He deserves our praise, our adoration and our obedience, just as the Father does. Now, they are great reasons for us to thank God. Uh, So please join with me as we do that.